I'm here with Professor Chris Kayser, who teaches at uh, Loyola Marymount College in LA. You teach uh, philosophy, and you've written a, a booklet on seven myths about the Catholic Church. I just wanted to go through some of the, sure. the uh, defense of Catholicism. And let's just start with the first one, that the church is against science. Um, yeah, so some people think the church is against, uh, against science, and I think sometimes they confuse uh, Catholicism with certain kinds of Protestant fundamentalism. So, as you know, the Catholic Church thinks that faith and reason are compatible, that God is the author of two books, the book of Revelation, Scripture, the book, uh, and then also the book of nature. And God is consistent, so there's no contradiction between the truths of Revelation and the truths of Scripture. Uh, one way to think about it is that God is the source of all truth, whether that truth is the truth of religion given to us by Jesus or the truth of science and history and psychology. And one of the reasons for that is that all truth is ultimately a matter of the logos, the reason. And uh, we believe as Catholics that the word, the logos, became flesh, and that's what Revelation's about. But also the logos informs all creation, right? God in the beginning in Genesis speaks, you know, says, let there be light. So it's God's rational speech that brings order out of chaos. And so the natural world is a reflection of the divine wisdom. And that's exactly why science is possible. In other words, if the world wasn't intelligible, that is something that we could understand, well then science couldn't get off the ground. If it was just a chaotic mess and you know mm -hmm. everything going everywhere, we wouldn't be able to study it because it just would be random and chaotic and it wouldn't make any sense. But in fact, creation is reasonable, it is rational, it is able to be investigated by science. And one way of accounting for that is to say that the intelligibility of the world reflects the intelligence of a creator. Mm. So the church, as you know, doesn't condemn science at all. Uh, in fact, science was born in universities which were born uh, from the church, and many of the greatest scientists of all time uh, were not only people who believed in God, but were practicing Catholics. So mm. think of, say, the uh, cleric uh, Nicholas Copernicus or the um, Louis Pasteur is another example. Uh, Father George Lemaitre was uh, a priest scientist who uh, discovered the Big Bang, first proposed that theory, which eventually now is accepted mm -hmm. in uh, scientific circles. So you have these priest scientists, you have Catholic universities that have, all of them, have departments of science. And in those universities, uh, undergraduates are required to take courses in science. Now, if the church were opposed to science, it'd be kind of odd to, that they also require uh, students right. to study science. Right. So, you know, people, some people do think that the church is opposed to science, but I think the reality is that the church is very much supportive of science as part of investigating God's good creation. Right. And I've heard people go so far to say, too, even like cultures that aren't Judeo-Christian, you know, they believe in a creator God, um, even though they have intelligent people, yeah, they don't develop the science part. They might be good in math or something, yeah. but in terms of like, yeah, figuring out how this works together, if there's a design to it, uh, which is, I thought, that's exactly opposite of what we believe in the culture. <laughs> we think so. the church yeah. is always holding back man's progress. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, I think part of it is, at least in the United States, that uh, some people think of Christianity solely in terms of a certain kind of, uh, Protestant fundamentalism. Right. And some of those people really do think that faith and reason are opposed. Right. And they think faith and reason are opposed, and they say, okay, well, we choose yeah. faith. 
Yeah. But then other people uh, think faith and reason are opposed and they choose science. So mm -hmm. people like Richard Dawkins, the new atheist types. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is a false dichotomy. You know, choose either faith yeah. or reason. Uh, the Catholic view is that God is the God of faith and the God of reason. And that there's no choice, uh, there's no need to choose, you know, one over the other, right? right. Any more than if a parent has a son and a daughter and say, well, do you love your son or your daughter? Well, no, yeah. I love them both, right. right? And that's the church's view is that the church loves faith, obviously, it's a faith-based institution, but the church also loves reason. And so what we're after is not choosing faith or reason, but rather what we're after really is a reasonable faith and a faithful reason. We want faith and reason to really work in harmony. Right, and our faith needs reason. I mean, reason obviously needs faith to attain God and it can motivate us and things, but too the the opposite the flip side of that too is that our faith needs reason right to make it human more maybe human and even i like to think of it too as like just to give ourselves to god we want to engage the intellect to try to understand him that you know that's natural that i so i can love him more and i can that's right yeah trust so him. anselm famously defined theology as faith seeking understanding mm -hmm. well you can't have understanding of anything unless you're using your reason that's what it is to understand yeah. And so God calls people to faith, but that doesn't mean giving up your mind and forgetting about uh, reason and throwing out philosophy. Again, there are some religions who think that, um, but not Catholicism. I uh, think of some of the great figures in the Catholic tradition, people like Augustine, Aquinas, Bonaventure, Scotus. Mm -hmm. These were not people who said, well, just forget about reason and just go with faith, or people that said, forget about faith, let's just go with reason. Right. All those figures in the great tradition, uh, all the way running up to today, people yeah. like uh, Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul II, all these figures are figures who, who want to say, well, look, God gives us really two gifts. He gives us the gift of faith and he gives us the gift of reason. Yeah. And these two gifts are meant to work together. One image that John Paul II uses was the idea of faith and reason being like two wings of a bird that help the bird to fly up towards the truth. Mm. And I think that's a great image because, you know, if you think of a bird with which is just one wing, if mm. all you had was reason or all you had was faith, well, you could move around a little bit, but you're not really gonna be able to fly. Mm -hmm. And if we're gonna have as much understanding of, of God's world and God's truth as we can, we need both faith and reason working together. Right. Okay, and the second point uh, that the church is against happiness. Yeah, so that's another bah, uh, another yeah. big exactly another big myth, and uh, you know again I think the the truth is just the opposite. So there was a famous study done at Harvard University about happiness called the Grant Study, and it began with Harvard undergraduates, you know, twenty some years old, eighteen whatever, and it studied them every year all the way through their life. So the study went on for years and years and only ended uh, when the last you know person died in their nineties, and. Uh, after all this research, you know, millions and millions of dollars spent years and years, the lead researcher was asked one time, okay, well, you spent all this money, you did all this research for years, what's the bottom line for happiness? And the lead researcher replied, happiness is love, full stop. And that's really the message of, of Jesus. I mean, when Jesus was asked about, well, what's the most important law of all? Jesus said what? To love God with your whole heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is, this message about the importance of love is obviously absolutely central to the message of Jesus. And you think about the other parts of Jesus' message too. Think about, for instance, when he was asked, how many times do I have to forgive my neighbor? Right, seven times? And he replies, of course, no, 70 
times seven, and he means by that not 140, but he means you know infinitely, perfectly, nonstop. Mm -hmm. And again, the wisdom of Jesus and the wisdom of the church in highlighting the importance of forgiveness is seen in contemporary science. So uh, researchers in psychology point out that one of the most important things for someone's happiness is the ability to forgive others. Because, you know, let's say we uh, were friends and, uh, you know, the years go by and, and we're in this friendship. Well, sooner or later, I can assure you, I'm going to do something that really irritates you and makes you mad. And you might even do something that makes me mad. And if we don't have forgiveness, what we do is say, well, that's it. I'm not talking to you anymore. Forget it. No more Christmas cards. No more lunch. We're, we're done. It's over. And so people who lack forgiveness basically have no long-term relationships with their family. Right? They just don't talk to their brother, their mother, their sister, whoever. They don't have long-term relationships with friends. right? Because again, sooner or later, someone's going to do something that makes you mad. And so we need forgiveness to have long-term loving relationships and friendships. And we need long-term loving relationships and friendships in order to be happy. Mm. So the church's wisdom, uh, you know, it's really just echoing the message of Jesus, is a message that really helps us to be much more happy. Mm. Let me give you one more example. Uh, the church, of course, and Jesus teaches about the dangers of greed. You know, the dangers of disordered love of money, when you love money excessively. And again, this is a message that really helps people to be more happy. Uh, there's a lot of research in psychology about the relationship between money and happiness. And basically what it turns out is that if you're extremely poor, if you don't eat three meals a day, if you have nowhere to sleep, if you're out in the cold and you don't have a coat, well, more money makes you a lot more happy. Right? Mm -hmm. Once you get three meals a day, you have a place to sleep, you've got mm -hmm. warm clothes, you're going to be way more happy. But once you get above that, more money makes no difference for happiness. So mm -hmm. if I said, okay, here's person A. Person A makes... Uh, $40,000 a year. Person B makes $400,000 a year. And person C makes $4 million a year. I would have told you absolutely nothing about, you know, who is more mm -hmm. or less happy. Mm -hmm. You know, again, what really matters is love. Yeah. You know, love of God, love of neighbor. Those are the things that make a difference for happiness. So why does, it, why does the church warn us about greed? Well, a disordered love of money. If I love money too much, well, that gets in the way of love. Right? Because if I love money too much, maybe I'm going to steal your recording device and try to sell it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if I do that, that damages our relationship. Right? Because now you think, well, I can't trust this guy. He's a thief. He's going to, mm -hmm. you know, who knows what he's going to do next. And if I love money too much, maybe I work too much. And I tell my wife and kids, oh, you know, I'd love to be there for your concert. You know, I know you got First Communion on Saturday. I, I, can't, work. I can't be there. I've got to work. You know, I'm putting mm -hmm. in my 120-hour weeks. Well, if I'm not there for my family, if I love money so much that I'm just working nonstop and never I'm there, well, that undermines my love for, for my family. So when the church warns us about, for instance, the vice of being too greedy, it's not that it's down on money. We need money to live. But it's, that it, it's a warning about disordered love of money, loving money too much. Mm -hmm. right? So all the church's teachings are like this. They're really not at all to get in the way of happiness or to thwart us. They're really to promote our well-being. I'll just give you one more example. There's a lot of research in contemporary psychology about the importance of gratitude. Basically, what they found is that gratitude literally saves lives. They did a study in which they looked at, that in the United States, um, when people killed themselves. And it turns out that the fewest number of suicides take place on Thanksgiving Day. Right? Suicides are at the mm. lowest of the whole year. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, right? On Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. rather than saying, oh, I don't have this, I don't have that, 
people more than any other day on Thanksgiving, they say, oh, what, what do I have? Mm -hmm. Right? God's given me life. He's mm -hmm. given me friends. He's given me this. He's given me that. And we think of, we're grateful for all those good things in our lives. And this, again, is a message that the church has been uh, broadcasting through the centuries. Uh, every Mass, every Eucharist, right? Eucharist is just the Greek term for Thanksgiving. Uh, is a chance to give thanks to God. Mm -hmm. So for us Catholics, we're really lucky. We don't have to wait till Thanksgiving in, in November to give thanks to God. Mm -hmm. Every single Sunday, in fact, every day, really, we have the possibility of, of being grateful, of offering the Eucharist, offering thanksgiving to God for all those blessings in our life. And, and think of, again, in Mass, the very last words of every Mass are always the same, right? Thanks be to God, mm -hmm. right? That's the message the Church wants us to have as we go out in the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea that the church is against happiness is, is uh, again, just the opposite of the case. One, one more final mm -hmm. little bit of, of interesting information about this. This just came out in the Los Angeles Times about a month ago. There was a big research study done about suicide, and the researchers were completely startled because they, they found this, this interesting discovery. Um, they were looking at suicide rates of all different groups, and among Catholic women who went to Mass every week, whose suicide rate in the study for them was zero. Mm. None of them, zero percent, right? So again, I think there's lots of evidence that practicing a faith, going to mass, mm. trying to serve mm. God, love, it, love your neighbor, this is really helpful for our well-being. Right. Yeah, I, I like to think of it just like leading a virtuous life is a happy life. I mean, it doesn't mean we don't suffer at the cross or have difficulties. But yeah, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, you know, we love God, the natural virtues, we're loving our neighbor, and it just allows us, if we're virtuous, to give of ourselves, you know, to possess ourselves and to be able to give ourselves away in a mature way. And that's, that's the path to human flourishing. And, and the church is there as a teacher to show us the way. Hey, this is the path of life, right. you know? And this, right. we can, I had one priest tell me one time, he, he's telling this conversion story, and he said, you know, he was so relieved to like come to the faith, and he said he, he just didn't have to wake up every day and figure out the universe anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knew the path. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's yeah just, I think you're right. There, there definitely is suffering in everyone's life. Yeah. And that's true whether you're a virtuous person, whether you're a vicious person, or whether you're someone in between, a little bit right. of this and a little bit of that. I mean, we're here on earth, and that means we're going to suffer in various ways, yeah. and that's inevitable. Right. Um, think of the story of Moses, right, with the, with the flood. You know, he, uh, the flood's coming, and it's coming for mm. you, and it's coming for me, it's coming for everyone. There's mm. going to be a flood in our mm. life. Very difficult times, mm. uh, you know, it could be a health matter, it could be a crisis in a, a family, a crisis in a religious community. There's floods coming. Mm. But I think God's call to, to Noah, and it's call to us, is you make an ark. Right, get yourself ready, get yourself strong. Yeah. To be a virtuous person is to be strong, right. and you want to be the kind of person that when the crisis comes, yeah. you're Noah, and you say, "Hey, this is not great. They got the the the, the rains are coming. We're going to get into the ark. Right? right, I've been preparing for this. I'm ready to help, and you're going to be someone who's really a strong person for all those other people in your life that need your help. That's what I hope to do. I mean, I hope that I can be someone who others can really trust and rely on. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. If you don't mm -hmm. have the virtues, if you're not trying to work on that, well, you're not going to be reliable, right? Oh, you're yeah. going to be drowning with everybody else. You didn't yeah. make the ark, yeah. you didn't prepare, and now life is really going to wallop you over the head because there's yeah. a flood coming for all of us. And the question is just, are we going to prepare, build ourselves, help us, 
help ourselves to be strong so we can really serve others and really be heroic in the moment? Or are we not going to do that? And, and, you know, we have that choice. But I think, uh, the, you know, the way that God's offering us is pretty clear that he wants us to be something like Noah and not like the, right. the other people. Yeah, and the scary thing is like how the how far the culture has fallen, like in teaching morality, and especially like with young people, you know, they can be so influenced by, you know, like the promiscuous culture or the, you know, we have a way of deforming people to be very self-absorbed and everything in our culture, and that's scary. You know, that when we don't have a culture that forms people on the right path, I think that's families, you have a large family and you know, that can be such an oasis of peace, you know, for society, for the culture, just marginalized people, whatever, you know, that could kind of plug into your family a little bit or, you know, be reassured by a, you know, a solidity there that, uh, I mean, it just seems like so much comes back to that breakdown of the family. And Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, you're totally right, yeah. that's really important. I think that people can be deeply wounded yeah. Uh, you know, if their family is really uh, contentious and, and troubled. Uh, I, I know that, uh, you know, in my life, for me, I mean, that's really what I hope to do uh, really most of all, you know, is to be a good husband and a good mm -hmm. father. And, and unfortunately, you know, I, I have to go to confession frequently, I fall and mm -hmm. try and mm -hmm. get back up. And uh, But, you know, I, I do think in a way, even with our imperfections sometimes, I think ultimately if we, if we try and, and mm -hmm. make a real effort to correspond to God's mm -hmm. grace, that in the end things can turn out okay. Yeah. Uh, to think of a different story, I think of the story of Abraham. You know, he leaves his home and he's, he lies about Sarah being his wife mm -hmm. and he gets off into trouble. And yet, you know, through it all, God was sort of working with him. So I do think, obviously, today we have issues, but I, I think we can forget that every age has issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the the people during World War II. I mean, you had, you know, Stalin, uh, you know, being a tyrant. You had Hitler being a tyrant. You look like the world's going to be taken over by the, <laughs> these yeah. two terrible people. Yeah. Um, you have Japan bombing Pearl Harbor. I mean, every yeah. age has its yeah. serious issues. Think yeah. back even further. Think back to the French Revolution. You know, people like you were literally getting killed, and this right. whole place would be taken over by the government, and yeah. all the nuns killed, all the priests killed, yeah. off with their head in the reign of terror. Yeah. Um, you know, we've gone through all kinds of things, and, and I think that, you know, obviously our age has its own challenges, but if you ask me, would you rather live today or during the French Revolution or during, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'd want to be, you know, under communist persecution or the French Revolution or in the Nazi regime, or yeah. I mean, man, there yeah. have been people that have just been in yeah. absolute hell, right? Yeah. I think of your brother, Maximilian Kolbe, right, right. In, the, in the concentration camp yeah. at Auschwitz. I mean, talk about it. <laughs> a harrowing situation, yeah. I mean, unbelievably yeah. bad. So, yeah. you know, if I had to choose my, my challenge and choose my, uh, my flood, I think our flood is relatively uh, benign compared to some of these things in history. Right. Another myth you address is that the church is against women. What would your wife say about that? <laughs> we had your, you and your wife on the show a few yeah. years ago. And, that's uh, right. That's right. Now, this is, uh, again, something that some kind of radical feminists uh, like to say. But my retort uh, in part to that is to say, well, look, if the church is so opposed to women, why is it that about 85% of people who volunteer in the Catholic Church are women? Mm -hmm. um, is it that they're so stupid that they're completely brainwashed and mind-numbed robots? Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's look at those ones. Let's take a little deeper. Most of these women have college degrees. 
Most of these women aren't homeless, crazy people. You mm -hmm. know, they're married. Most of these women are uh, mature women. They're mm -hmm. not, you know, teenagers. They're, you know, between 30 and, and 50. Mm -hmm. So these are mature, educated women in stable relationships. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to look down your nose at them and say, wow, they don't know what they're talking mm -hmm. about. They're, they're, you know, working against their own inter interests or something. It seems to me unbelievably condescending. Mm -hmm. I mean, for people who are so into uh, affirming the choices that women make, somehow, if they choose to volunteer in the church, which again, 85% of people who volunteer in the church are women, that somehow uh, they're out of it, uh, I find that very, very hard to believe. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, the church does more for women around the world than any other institution on earth. I mean, think of all the people that church clothes, houses, educates, feeds, mm -hmm. all the hospitals they run. Um, these are benefiting women all literally all over the world so if the church is so opposed to women and so against women why would they do all that right mm -hmm. i mean, think of a real group that's opposed to people you know the kkk obviously opposed to black people do mm -hmm. they go around housing clothing feeding educating black people and then are 85 percent of the people who volunteer for the kkk you know black people of course not mm -hmm. <laughs> so i think really what's going on is there are some people who disagree with the church and they like to try to vilify the church by making these very bigoted accusations against them, like they're against women somehow. Right. Um, I mean, one more bit of food for thought on this is if the church is so against women, why is it that the church is always celebrating women? I mean, how many Marian feast days are there to celebrate Mary, the mother of Jesus? How many female saints are there, right? St. Clair, Edith Stein, mm. um, you know, there's, there's innumerable, right, yeah. women saints. So. The church is, uh, you know, obviously, I think, not opposed to women in any way. Um, one of the big issues that arises there, of course, is ordination, right? And, and the critics will say, well, look, if, if the church is so in favor of women, why doesn't the church ordain women? And the supposition there is sort of that the church's teaching on women's ordination, at least implicitly, is a kind of put down of women. Like women are not as intelligent or can't preach as well or aren't as compassionate. But the church's teaching on, on ordination has nothing to do with that. There are some women who are unbelievably intelligent mm -hmm. and unbelievably compassionate and mm -hmm. would be unbelievably good preachers. Mm -hmm. It's not about the individual uh, qualities of, of any particular person. So what is it about? Well, on the church's view, the seven sacraments are established by Jesus. And the church does not have the authority to add new sacraments, mm -hmm. right? Pope Francis or the bishops can't come out and say, well, now we're going to have nine sacraments instead of seven. Or we're only going to have four sacraments instead of seven. No, Jesus established the seven sacraments. And not only did he establish the sacraments, but he established the matter of the sacraments. So, for instance, if we have baptism, the church can't change and say, well, now we're going to do baptism with sand rather than water. Same thing with the Eucharist. We use bread and wine because that's what Jesus used. And the church doesn't have the authority to say, well, we're going to use, you know, sausage and beer because, you know, if you're in Germany, People there like sausage and beer better than bread and wine. Okay, well, they might, but you know, we're not at liberty to substitute out and to correct what right. we perceive as Jesus' mistake. And so in the same way with the Sacrament of, of Holy Orders, Jesus established that it is the 12 apostles, 12 men who ordained the first mm. priests. And Jesus was very free to break with Jewish traditions, but he did not break with that one, the tradition of a male priesthood. And so the church doesn't have the authority to break with what Jesus did. I mean, the whole point of the church is to follow what Jesus taught, to follow his example, and we are not at liberty to 
get rid of sacraments or add sacraments or change the sacraments around to suit our suit our perceptions and our needs. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that's a, such a, a great point about the Mary, you know, as a model disciple, immaculate conception, right. and and we try to follow how she lived, what she did, and her fiat and faith and, you know, pilgrimage of faith all the way to Calvary, as a woman is held up as this model for us. She's That's a human right. person. And, yeah. and yeah, the other thing, too, that many have commented on is, like, you know, the sexual revolution, you know, hurts women and children the most. I mean, certainly, it seems like men are out there doing a lot of the damage of it, and they're suffering from committing sin. And the, but a lot of times the women and children are suffering the consequences. No, you know? I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. The church's teachings are very much um, upholding the dignity of women. So mm -hmm. one example is uh, the church has, uh, you know, throughout its whole history, fought against polygamy. So if you look at all kinds of civilizations around the world and all kinds of religions, you know, ancient Judaism, Mormonism, today Islam, they all these have held, you know, that polygamy is, is acceptable. And the church is really focused uh, again, following the teachings of Jesus on monogamy, right? That a man, a husband and wife are equals. And so they wouldn't be equals if the husband has four wives and mm. no, you know, mm. that's not an equal relationship. Right. So, and this has been a huge help to women because wherever there's polygamy, this is to the serious disadvantage of both women and children. Mm. It's to the disadvantage of women because in polygamous situations, what happens is the average age of women drops. And so you have situations where uh, women are getting married to men that are much older, right? So in polygamous mm -hmm. things, you often see, you know, whatever, a 50-year-old man, mm -hmm. he's with, uh, you know, 14-year-old girl. I mean, you have, see this very right. commonly. Um, that's not to the advantage mm -hmm. of women. I don't think many women really want to marry someone who could be their dad, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to, um, but in monogamy, you have more of a parity, more of an equality between the right. man and the woman in terms of that. And then in terms of uh, support from the man, I mean, yeah. if, if I had, you know, four wives and they all had kids, I mean, how much help can I really get to any of them, right? right? Whereas if there's one man and one woman, they together make an equal team that are able to, you know, share in their own shared children. Yeah. Um, and that, that lends itself much more to fathers really being involved and really helping with the kids. Right. And another myth you address is that there's an accusation that the church is indifferent to love. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I was thinking here about the church's teaching on contraception. So people think sometimes, well, if the church really were wanted to promote marital love, it should uh, also condone and promote contraception. And you know, the church's teaching on contraception, I think, is um, difficult to understand unless we understand the value and the good of procreation. So if we think about, you know, why does the church teach that stealing is wrong? Well, that's based on the good of private property, right? Or if we didn't understand why telling the truth and being honest was a good thing, it'd be really hard to understand why, why lying is wrong. So in a similar way, if we don't understand really why procreation is good, it's going to be very hard to understand why acting against procreation, being contra, against conception, why that's going to be problematic. So one way to think about it is something like this. Um, we might agree that gold is a valuable thing. Mm. If that's true, well, then a gold mine is also valuable we will probably agree that having cash is a valuable thing. Well, if that's true, then the lucrative career is also valuable. So if it's true that you and I and every other human being on planet Earth has intrinsic dignity and value, if all of us have, have tremendous importance as being made in the image of God, 
Well, then what gives rise to us, procreation, also has tremendous value. And so, if since private property is such a good thing, it's wrong to act against that by stealing. Mm -hmm. And since being truthful and honest and communicating in a, uh, with integrity is a good thing, well, that helps to explain why lying is a bad thing. And if procreation is really a great good, if it's the church is right that procreation contributes greatly to the well-being of the parents who procreate, well, then we can see why the church would see contraception as problematic because it's acting against that good of procreation. Yeah. Yeah, just like the church to promote a, a marriage culture, like you said, it, it helps to support the woman like uh, in being pregnant and giving birth, raising children, and, and, uh, and it seems like, uh, you know, just to join the two together. I think like emotionally, like the heart of women and their, you know, their gift for relationship, and they, you know, that's important for them as the relationships in their life. You know, that I think even more so than men, we all need relationship, we all need love, but uh, women in particular, you know, they want to have these healthy relationships. And marriage, family, is like the, the place of these intense relationships. And if we have this culture that's not supporting it, the church is very much saying, you know, marriage is this great good, we need to do these things to support that. That serves women, it serves children. Yeah, and procreation yeah. is a real bond for mm -hmm. the couple that helps promote stability in yeah. the relationship. Yeah. So there was an interesting study done of uh, likelihood of divorce. This is worldwide. Basically what it found was that couples that have no kids at all have about a 34% likelihood of divorcing. Mm -hmm. If they have one child, likelihood of divorce drops to about 24%. If they have yeah. two kids, it drops down to 17%. Yeah. And if they have four or more children, they had less than a 3% likelihood of divorcing. Yeah. So children are a kind of glue, a kind of bond right. that bring the husband and wife together and really give them extra motivation for working through any difficulties and problems that they have. Yeah, and then what is, I've read, I don't remember the statistic, but some statistics show that the couple does grow a little bit of unhappiness with kids, <laughs> like they hit the teenage years and stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of work involved and then, um, but what, as a Catholic and you're generous with life, you've got seven children, what has been your experience, especially like a role as a father too, and, children in their teenage years and things. Yeah, yeah. So the studies that I've read do show that uh, when children are newly born, there's a dip in happiness. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really easily explained in the sense of anyone who has a newborn baby in the house. Yeah. You know, baby's crying in the middle yeah. of the night, neither person's sleeping very well, yeah. you're wiped yeah. out and yeah. sleep deprived. Well, of course you're feeling unhappy yeah. for a little while. So I think that's definitely true. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's also true that children provide a kind of uh, unity of the couple that I'm not mm -hmm. sure anything else could really provide. And the unity basically is, you might say, a kind of emotional unity. So if you have a child with somebody and, uh, you know, assuming that you, you both love that child, which is a mm -hmm. pretty safe assumption, I mean, almost all parents love their own kids, and mm -hmm. if you don't, you've got really big problems. Mm -hmm. But if you love your own kid, what that means is you're going to be unified with your spouse in the following way. Um, everyone's life has ups and downs. So when your kid has something great happen, you know, they're um, really good at dancing, mm -hmm. or they get into the college they mm -hmm. want, or they are uh, accepted as a marine officer or whatever, mm -hmm. you're going to be united together and really happy together. On the other hand, in everyone's life, there are things that don't go very well. You know, you don't get into the college you want. The boyfriend breaks up with you, mm -hmm. the, the whatever happens. And, and when things go bad for your child, your child's upset or sick or, or injured or whatever, 
Well, you're united also in your concern for that child. So, so part of having a marital relationship is being unified together. And having kids provides that kind of unity where you're up together and times are good, you're rejoicing together over whatever is going well for your kids. On the other hand, if you're having trouble, you're, you're together in your trouble, right. but you're together. And I yeah. think that's, that's really part, yeah. of, part of marriage. And this, I don't think you cover this in your book, but I, I've heard it said that uh, the role of the father can take a certain precedence, like kids, they're getting their teenage years and going to college and things. And like, like the father can be helpful, like in kind of introducing them to the world, you know, and, and showing them the path of where to, have you experienced that with your kids? Or? Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's true to a degree. I mean, you know, for instance, I'm a college professor, so I know that, that my kids have turned to me you know, when they want information about college and, you know, courses and who's a good professor to take and, and things like that. Um, and I do think that, that obviously when, when children are very little, like babies, um, typically at least, especially if the woman's breastfeeding, there's a, there's a tighter kind of bond there between the mother and the, the newborn baby. And it's a kind of biological mm -hmm. matter at first. And then as the child grows, well then, you know, dad maybe becomes a little uh, bigger in the picture. Mm -hmm and uh, you know, more easily uh, involved in certain aspects of life. So you know, I do think you know, couples are different, so it might depend on the individual couple, but I, I do find that, for me at least, uh, if I didn't have my wife, I think I would be in enormous trouble, even with the older kids. And uh, I think she feels that I help her out too. So yeah. I, I feel it's a real, a real uh, kind of partnership where, where, again, if something happened to her, God forbid, I would, <laughs> I, it would not be good <laughs> at all. Um, and I think she feels the same way. Something happened to me, it would really not be good. It's, it's yeah. kind of working together because I have, uh, I can see certain things and do certain things that, that aren't really her cup of mm -hmm. tea and vice versa. Um, you know, she sees and can yeah. do things that, that are, I'm not really very good at either. So, so I find that the complementarity and working together is, is really, um, you know, really helpful. Uh, myth you address is that the church is against gay people. Yeah, this is sometimes I have a uh, somebody, a gay friend, and he says some people in the gay community say the church is their, the enemy, mm -hmm. and you know that's a really sad thing because you know the church is is trying imperfectly but trying to live out the message of Jesus, and that is that God loves everybody, it doesn't matter what's going on, and yet I think sometimes people think that well if you love someone that means you automatically agree with them. And that's a real mistake. I mean, you can love someone. In fact, we're called to love everyone. But we can't really agree with both Republicans and Democrats, both liberals and conservatives. I mean, they, they have different views on things. And so it is true that, that um, some people uh, disagree with the church's teaching on sex being reserved to, uh, to marriage between a man and a woman. But I don't think we should take that disagreement to mean, well, you don't really love the person. Um, I, I think part I, of that. You know, yeah. I always say with that too is that I would think in the family of the same-sex attracted person, they're going to have people that disagree with their lifestyle, but they know it might be the parent you know, that would still love them. I mean, sadly, there's sometimes very terrible rejection in the family but of the person himself. But I would think they would experience that in the family, that, hey, I don't agree with what you're doing, but I still love you. And they believe, like, one of these parents. So why can't the Christian be granted that same? Yeah, <laughs> well, I think we can even think about it in ourselves. Uh -huh. I mean, I sometimes disapprove of things that I do. And right. that doesn't mean I don't love myself, right? right? In right. fact, the reason I disagree with some things I do is because I know better. And I think, mm -hmm. 
I really should be forgiving to that person, but I hold a grudge, you know, or whatever. Um, And I disapprove of the actions that I do. But that doesn't mean I don't love myself. And I think with with part of the challenge, I think, for people is sometimes people think if I'm not doing sexual activity, uh, that means I'm going to be miserable. And I think the mistake there is to think that it is true. We do need loving relationships, but those relationships don't have to be sexual. Right? Human beings as social definitely do need loving relationships. Right? We need to have family and friends and religious community. We need to have people that really care about us and we care about. But those relationships don't have to be sexual. And we know for sure that many people who have all kinds of sexual relationships, think of big celebrities that have all kinds of sexual partners, but many of those people are not happy at all. They're miserable. Yeah. Right? So we know for sure that you know, tons of sex, tons of power, tons of booze, tons of drugs, tons of money, none of that guarantees that you're happy. Again, think of the celebrities that have all those things in space. Well, actually, Jim Carrey said that. You know, he yeah. said that he wishes everybody could be rich and famous. They could realize that this isn't the answer to happiness. Yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, and there's tons of, yeah. Jim Carrey's not the only one. There's tons yeah. and tons of celebrities. Yeah. Even, I, I read after he died, there was an interview uh, that I read uh, in the New York Times that Hugh Hefner was interviewed. Mm-hmm. And even he said, I spent years looking for love in the wrong places. Right, even he said that. So I think I think there's really undeniable evidence that, you know, the idea that um, you need sexual relationships in order to be happy. This is this is this is just a myth. Um, You do need love. You need loving relationships. You need friendships. Friendships with God, with other people. You do need that. But um, yeah, but you but the sexual expression of that that's a different matter. Yeah. What do you think, uh, you know, there's some powerful voices sometimes within the church that, you know, it seems like we're getting confusing messages today about homosexuality. Um, I feel like sometimes it's like this attempt to normalize it, Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, this is a gift from God, it's good, be proud of who you are. And to me, the next logical consequence is, well, if this is such a great good, why can't I act on it? Yeah. And this just naturally follows. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. I mean, I do think there's all kinds of different voices in the church, and you know, people saying this, people saying mm-hmm. that. Uh, for me, though, you know, the the important voice is is what the church is officially mm-hmm. officially said, because there's always going to be people that are saying this and saying that and, right. and whatever. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the church's official teaching, it seems to me very clear right. that we're called to love everyone. We're called to be kind to everyone. Uh, we are called to accept the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the church. And those things aren't uh, opposed to each other. I'll give you an example from my own life. There was someone in, uh, in my family who, uh, or this guy who, who said, you know, I first met your family, I was terrified because, you know, he said, I'm gay, I'm an atheist, I'm Jewish. And I thought, you know, you guys, you guys are just going to hate me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said to me, you know, you and your family have been nothing but kind to me. Mm. And, you know, and I said, well, geez, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That's what we're supposed to do. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, the teaching of Jesus is we're mm-hmm. supposed to love everybody. And for me, loving someone includes loving them enough to be honest with them and say, mm-hmm. hey, you know what? Maybe we don't agree about this. Yeah. That's okay. I still love you. Right. But, you know, my view is that what God wants us to do is to reserve our sexual activity for marriage between yeah. a man and a woman. And I appreciate, maybe yeah. you understand, don't appreciate, don't accept that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, God's call to love people isn't love all those people as long as they totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. Or love all those people as long as they act exactly perfectly. 
No, God's call of love is love everybody. Mm -hmm. And yes, are we going to fail? Yeah, everyone's going to fail. And it might be, you know, homosexual activity. It might be something else. Mm -hmm. It might be greed. It might be pride. It might be whatever. But again, I don't think that excludes us from God's love. I mean, the, the call of God is for conversion of everyone, regardless of what the particular instance right. is. Right. You're, you're raising a family in the L.A. area, right? Do you... Um, do you you struggle like do you worry about like the cultural influence on your kids and do you feel like you're always having to protect or is that is that a struggle for you or? yeah yeah I mean I think you know with with uh, the media and social media I, I'm not sure it really matters too much exactly where you are mm -hmm. in the sense of you can be in the middle of Kansas and yeah. you know get whatever right. movies right. and whatever else is out there um, and so yeah I think I think LA maybe is even more pronounced mm -hmm. than other places uh, so I, I think that, I think that is a reality. Um, you know, part of I think helping yourself is to try, and again, this is a challenge today, but to try to uh, have what enters you be things that are edifying. So there's a yeah. great passage that uh, Paul talks about where he says, "Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, mm -hmm. whatever is just, whatever is pure, what is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy mm -hmm. of praise." think about those things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's advantageous, whether you're younger or older, to try to, to do that, to think about things that are really going to, and, and look at things and, and enjoy things that are really going to move you in a good direction. Because right. I think it's, it's uh, uh, obviously possible not to do that mm -hmm. <laughs> and to get in moving in the wrong direction. Right. Just uh, end with one question. I know you've written a book on marriage. Um, what would you say to, to sell marriage to a young person out there? It seems like uh, less people are getting married today. I think over 50% of like marriageable age people aren't married. It's like the highest, I think, in recent history. Uh, how would you convince a young person to get married about the greatness of marriage? Well, I think marriage really is a, a great good, and I think there's actually lots of empirical evidence to support that. So if you think about um, uh, lifespan, right? You think about um, marriage is good for your your health, it's good for your financial health, it's good for your relationships. So this kind of circles back to something we were talking about before about we need uh, loving relationships with other people to be happy. Again, not necessarily mm -hmm. sexual, but loving. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to be married to do that. You can't find that in a religious community, you can find that even as a single person. But I think marriage is a huge advantage because if you're married, you've got a very concrete and specific way of loving God and loving other people. So it's a little bit like this. If you think about New Year's resolutions, so imagine one person says, well, this next year I want to really be healthy and leaves it at that. Right. Okay, well, maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't. But the, uh, imagine a second person who says, this year I want to be healthy, so what I'm going to do is every day I'm going to walk for 45 minutes and every day I'm going to eat a salad, right? right. It's very concrete and uh -huh. specific. Well, that second person is much more likely to actually become more healthy because they've got a real concrete and specific plan. And so I think part of the good of marriage is that we're going to find happiness only through love. But it can be so vague, like love who, love when, I don't know. It's all just mm -hmm. a vague kind of uh, um, intention that has no real concrete specificity. Whereas when you're married, you do have that concrete specificity, right? I promise to love her this particular woman in good mm -hmm. times and in bad, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. I promise to welcome these children that we have together. 
So my path to loving God and loving neighbor is very concrete and very specific. And if it's ever unclear, she can tell you. Exactly. <laughs> if I ever need to, to know what to do next, I can say, honey, is there any way I can help you? And almost surely yeah. there'll be something. Right. So, so that's, a, that's a very helpful, helpful um, it's helpful to have a very concrete and specific way of realizing the goal of love, which is, which is a universal vocation. Everyone, yeah. everyone has a, a vocation to yeah. love God and love neighbor, but to be married is to make it very concrete and specific and therefore much more likely to actually take place. Yeah. I've often said that, like homilies and stuff, that, it, that I use that same word, concreteness, um, that uh, the, the marriage vocation very concretely shows like what love looks like, you know, sacrifice and giving and sharing. And I guess religious life certainly can do the same to some degree. And I think church documents talk about it, like reminding people of the primacy of the kingdom of God and, you know, this oriented towards a heavenly life, but they both help each other. You know, the, the religious can sometimes get too abstract or spirit over spiritualized, you know, and, uh, yeah. One way to think that I've thought about it is, um, you know, as a married man, my love is very focused and particularized. So I have a, you know, I should have a special focus on my wife and a special focus on my kids. Mm -hmm. And I would really be doing something wrong if I were out in the community volunteering, whatever. And then my own wife and my own kids really needed me and I just was too busy doing whatever. Right. Um, and I think that a person like you who has consecrated his life to God has a more universal uh, kind of love. So my love is very concrete and particularized, but your love is more universal. So any man is your potentially spiritual son, any woman is your spiritual daughter. So you have this sort of universal uh, kind of love. And it's more universal and it's also more radical, I have to say, because um, you can be called to serve God in a way that I, I'm not going to be called to serve God. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's not part of God's plan for my life that I move to, I don't know, remote mm -hmm lands and I have a, a Jesuit friend who moved to Africa and he told me, you know, the the food was intermittent, the electricity was always off, yeah. they didn't even have water sometimes and it was unbelievable. Yeah. And I would never dream of telling saying to my wife, Hey, we're honey, we're gonna move you know, the kids, we're right. gonna move to Africa. Right. You know, the water's gonna be in and out and maybe the electricity <laughs> be off and no food sometimes. Yeah. You know, I can't do that. Um, that would be totally yeah. unfair to her. Yeah. But there's a, a radical a radicality to the love of a priest or a, a sister, a brother, that yeah. is uh, both more, more universal and also more radical than the love of a, a married person. Yeah, and it's it's wonderful too. I've noticed, like in couples, to see the complementarity differences between the sexes and how that can bring a a, a flourishing of the other. And I heard somebody described it like I think they it's the term even like in colors, like certain colors complement each other like on the art spectrum or the color spectrum, and it, it makes the other color look, even look more vibrant or vivid, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know? And I've seen that like in husbands, uh, you know, it's like they, they can, they obtain like a masculinity, and you can tell that how the family helped them to do that, to rise to that, you know, and to, to live that, and that's a beautiful thing to see. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like my wife has helped me immeasurably to, mm -hmm. to grow, and, and the kids also. Mm -hmm. um, it's been an enormous gift to me, and really, you know, and my wife's quite honest, so she'll say, oh, you know, to give you one example, mm -hmm. if I start putting on some pounds, she'll, you know, say, hey, you know, watch out. <laughs> and the thing is, 
I'm really grateful for that because it yeah. really would be easy for me just to, oh, you know, every year yeah. you put on five yeah. pounds. Well, yeah. God, after 30 years, you're, you know, a hungry hippo. It's a, it's a big problem. So, yeah. so, you know, I think that, you know, she really has helped me in all kinds mm -hmm. of ways. Um, and again, I think that's part of God's plan for marriage is that, you know, husband and wife hopefully are working together and growing together and mm -hmm. moving in a good direction. And of course there's ups and downs, right? And that's true. It's true in marriage, but people forget this. It's true in being single. And you don't right. think being single has ups and downs, yeah. you know, you, you think someone likes you and they, they yeah. don't and, and whatever. I mean, there's, yeah. there's, look, human life is very hard <laughs> and there's suffering, whatever choice, whatever path you take, there's going to be difficulties. Uh, but marriage is a, a path. I think that like all paths has difficulties, but um, there's real, real rewards. And one of the greatest rewards is, is being able to share in loving your children together. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Oh, Jesus. my pleasure. Yeah. Dr.